today I want to speak uh, a word out of First Peter chapter two, that is something that is actually of uh, deep significance within me. This is a, a teaching that, in many ways, reflects uh, something that God has done within my own life over the last year. And there's a moment where God spoke something about my life and something about my church that I believe is not simply about my life and about my church, but it's something that God is trying to do in his body. And this summer I had the opportunity to go to Scotland. It was an incredible experience. Uh, if, if you are familiar at all with uh, revival history, uh, one of the most significant moves of God that has taken place. In fact, in many ways, the last true move of God and revival in Western history took place in a small little island off the coast of Scotland called the Hebrides on the Isle of Lewis. And it's here that uh, Reverend Duncan Campbell, who was the main minister and pastor, oversaw a, a radical move of God and a revival that spread across not only the entire uh, islands outside of Scotland, but touched the nations. And this revival, in many ways, is something that has just captured my heart. I long for God to move. I long for God to do something in my generation, a spiritual awakening. And I've often looked to this moment, this revival, as something that I cry out for God to do in my life and to do in this season. And so it was so meaningful for me to be able to go, and we have friends in the area, and to, to visit different places. If you're familiar with uh, the stories of this revival at all, there are just these moments where God did uh, unbelievable work, where there's a house that his power poured out on and begin to shake as if there was an earthquake, but it was a supernatural demonstration of power. Houses begin to shake in this rippling effect, and fear of God fell among the people, and repentance and salvation getting to pray in that very house. The Church of Barvis, which was uh, the main uh, epicenter of the, of the revival where Duncan Campbell would preach and minister, I got to go and we just got to spend time in prayer and have conversations. Uh, Reverend McLeod, who is the, one of the few surviving uh, people who were part of the revival, the first convert of the Hebrides revival, lived next door. To hear him pray in Gaelic was the most powerful prayer I've never understood in my life, right? <laughs> And um, just the presence of God. I mean, just it was, it, was, uh, it was hard to describe, but it was, it was here in these moments that God was doing a deep work in my own heart. And in this night, late night in the Church of Barvis, and after prayer, there were these conversations about true revival. And revival is one of those words that for so many of us, it's thrown around so cheaply. It, it feels cliche to say, but yet the hunger inside of me, the hunger inside of us for a move of God is so real. Yet we call so many things revival that are, are probably not, in many ways we probably not even know what revival truly is until it was experienced among us. But one of the things that I love that they said is how Duncan Campbell said, what, what, what I knew when true revival came was, it was that God had restored the altars of our homes. And it was in that moment that this phrase that got spoken out began to stamp something within my own heart about a longing of the heart of God to move in our own homes in power. And one of the things that Duncan Campbell spoke about was that the, the true revival, it has almost this way that it takes shape, that, that God first, he restores the altar of your heart, and then in that, he restores the altars of our homes, and then in that, he restores the altars of our churches, and then it is there and there alone that God can restore the altar of a city. 
And in this longing in my heart, I begin to realize that the things I longed for God to do in my city were actually things that God longed to first and foremost do within me. And the things that I longed for God to do in our church were things that he wanted to do in our homes. And I'm here to tell you that I believe that God in this season is trying to wake his church to the desire of God for what he longs for us. But what I have found in these years of pastoring is that many times we will long for God to do things in our cities and long for God to do things in our churches that we refuse to actually let him do in our hearts and in our homes. And until we actually let God restore what he wants to restore within us, until we actually let the power and the presence of God move within our very homes as much as we would long for it to move within our churches, we will never experience what God dreams of doing among us. It has to start in us. And I'll tell you the passion in my bones for my life, for my church, for you, is for a season of God to restore our homes, restore our marriages, restore our parenting. If we're single, to bring kingdom purpose, deep covenant ally and friendship, to realize singleness is not a loss, it is an invitation, to restore the very fabric and nature of the seasons of our lives, to restore our homes, to restore our hearts. Because I believe it is here that God will do what he dreams of doing among us. And I say this to you as clearly as I can. We can no longer tolerate what we've tolerated hidden within our own hearts and hidden within our own homes. To the married, it is a season for you to pursue and find intimacy and a foundation in your marriage that can sustain the power and the presence and the move of God. The place of the greatest ministry should be flowing in and through your marriage, not around it. For those with children, It is time for your home to be a place where the power and the presence of God meets you in the most common places, that the very anchor of who you are and how you parent and how you lead your children is because God is present in your home. A day where we, as families, open our Bibles again and the power of the word of God creates an identity over who we are. We have to let God do the deep work Because it's when he does the work in us that we are going to then partner with him to do the work he dreams of in the cities that we belong to. 1 Peter 2 speaks of this in a dynamic way. It's an invitation from Peter to this persecuted community spread now across the Roman Empire. This is what Peter says in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 and then 9 through 12. He says, So put away all malice, and deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And isn't this even what the season of Advent is speaking to? That there is a day of visitation coming. That we have placed our hope in the arrival of Jesus in his first and in his second. And even in this invitation for how you and I are called to live in the in-between between those two moments. And what I love is that Peter's invitation centers around this picture, a picture of a house, a house that God is trying to build, a house made up of living stones, a a house that is made up of you and me, a house made up of believers and families placed together among communities that somehow together something is going to happen. What Peter says is that something together, when we get built into this house together, then you and I actually begin to take this place. We're in this spiritual house as a holy priesthood. We make spiritual sacrifices on behalf of the city around us. Peter is clearly moving into this imagery of the Old Testament of the temple, but he's speaking about this nature of an identity that you and I stand as the priests of our community. We stand as the priests of our neighborhoods. We stand as the people that God has placed in the here and now who cry out for God to move among those who don't know him. God is trying to build a house where you and I have been commissioned to a remarkable task. But notice that this task, this together task, starts with an individual invitation. It's a house made up of living stones. And you and I, as living stones, must receive the invitation that God has us for us first if we can be built together into the dream that God has for us. And Peter here is he speaks about this identity. He, he has these four invitations. And one of the things that I've learned as is, is you read Scripture, that to, to pay attention to where you just notice movement, action, invitation, that usually for us, sometimes how we read the Bible, we just kind of read it in these big chunks rather than slowing down and actually receiving the details of what's taking place. And here in 1 Peter 2, there's actually these four places of movement, these four invitations that stand out. Peter says there's something to put away, there's something to long for, there's something to grow up into, and there's something to be built up into. All four of these things, these different movements, are actually four different invitations of who we are as followers of Jesus. What does it mean to be a living stone that can be built into a house together that does this incredible work of Jesus in our world? I believe that they're found here to be a people who know how to come together. And so these invitations, I believe, are the invitations of God for us. The first invitation that Peter says is to put away. This is how he says it. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
And I don't know about you, but when I hear that phrase put away, this is immediately when I think of when I when I put something away, I put something away that I hope that maybe one day I can go back and get if I want to. Right now, for me, that basically means one thing clothes that no longer fit me, right? And basically, over the years, I've just got a box of clothes that used to fit me that one day I'm going to get back into. So I put them away. Now, sadly, over the last 20 years, there's about four or five boxes. My 13-year-old son is now coming and taking. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to fit in on those. And we all know I'm never going to fit in those ever again, right? But this is kind of the picture that, 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 that this idea when you, when you hear this text to put something away, it almost it captures that imagery that things we put away, we put away just far enough that they're not inside sight, but if we need to go get them, we know where they are. But can I tell you this, that this is not the invitation of Peter. That the the, the way you and I see this phrase, and the the truth is the way you and I actually handle the depths of our own heart, is rather than being people who walk in freedom, we often just take the natures of our past and the natures of our brokenness and the nature of our sin and we put them away in some closet hidden away. But when we want them, we know where to find them. We have to see the invitation. This phrase that Peter uses that gets translated put away, it does not mean to store it up so you can find it later. The most literal definition of it is to renounce it. The phrase to put away is actually found in this context of you are renouncing something from belonging to you. You are renouncing that you have any ownership of it. You are renouncing that you have any connection to it. And I want you to think about this. What Peter begins to say, he says these five words to renounce malice, to renounce deceit, to renounce hypocrisy, to renounce envy, and to renounce slander. But it's not just that he picks these five words, all five of these words uniquely in the Greek. He picks versions of them that all have to deal with this idea of corruption. Listen to this. The definition of this word of malice is evil and corrupt desires. Deceit is corrupt intentions to hook other people for your own purposes. Hypocrisy is corrupt and false identities. Envy is corrupt intentions. Slander is corrupt talk of others. Every single word he chooses uniquely comes back to this idea. What Peter is actually telling us is there are things about you that used to belong to you that the minute you came into Jesus, you have to recognize what they are. They are things that corrupt. And when you came into Jesus and you became a new creation, there is something that you have to choose to do. You have to choose to renounce the very things that are corruptive to your life and to your future and to the kingdom of God. It is not about putting away your sins so that somewhere when you need it, you can go find it. The anger is somewhere back in a closet that when you really need to access it or when lust is just put somewhere close that you, when you really want comfort, you can go and find it. Or greed is just somewhere at hand that when you really want what you want, you know where to go access it. You see, this is why you and I live lives of following Jesus that lack authority and power because rather than renouncing what used to belong to us, we put it away in case we can want it one day. And I'm here to tell you that what God has put into our lives as an invitation to walk in the power of new creation means that you and I renounce what corrupts. Church, we renounce what corrupts. It is time for us to take this posture in our own souls that what we have tolerated, the things that we have allowed to stay lingering deep within us, we cannot tolerate anymore. We have to renounce what no longer belongs to us because, friends, your old nature, your dead way, your flesh, it doesn't fit you. 
Every time you try to put it on, it's like clothes that were so long ago. They don't fit you. They don't become you. They aren't for you. They don't belong to you. And what God wants to do is he wants to teach you how to live in the power and the authority of new creation in our lives. But the only way we begin to do that is because we actually take a posture that what used to belong to us no longer does. No longer does. Peter continues, and he builds from this, and he has this second invitation in this word to long for. He says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. And of course, he gives this picture and this invitation of intimacy, of a, of a newborn breastfeeding with their mother. And it's, there's a reason that Peter uses this picture, because it is an intentional picture of intimacy and attention. It's not just eating a meal. It's not just, oh, I realized I'm hungry and I've got to go get something to eat. It's a, it's a picture of something so deliberate, something that without it, a child would not make it. But what I have found is that this idea of longing for things that give life, true spiritual milk, the very true realities of God that bring life to us. What so many of us do is we read a phrase like long for, and we either immediately experience shame or we immediately cancel ourselves out of the equation. Because for us, when we read a phrase like long for, it becomes an emotional invitation. Listen, we live in a generation that has a value for emotions, has a value for emotional intelligence, and has a value for emotional lives. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. But there is profound weaknesses in the midst of this. Because what we have done in the midst of a culture that has such a high value for emotions is that we have bought into the lies of a secular culture that somehow our emotions are our truth tellers and our emotions are our authorities. And let me just tell you, your emotions are worth honoring. Your emotions were created by God. Your emotions are something to be stewarded rightly, but your emotions are not always telling you the truth and your emotions are certainly not your authority. And what's happened to an entire younger generation is they have allowed their emotional life to become the authoritative governing system of how they walk out their life and how they follow Jesus. If I long for them, I'm gonna follow them. But if I long for sin, I'm gonna follow sin. And they become slaves to their own emotions rather than recognizing that you and I have been called to something greater. Our emotions are not meant to be our masters. Our emotions are not meant to be our truth tellers. Our emotions are meant to be a sense of discernment that always calls us back to submitting and yielding to the Lordship of Jesus. But what we have to see is this phrase, to long for. This is what happens inside of us. So we say, well, I'm supposed to long for the truth. Well, what do I do when I don't? Well, if I don't, well, then I'm just, I'm just not as good. That person, I know we can all fill in the blank. That person, they long for the truth. They long for Jesus. They, they, they have an emotional love for Jesus that I'll never be able to have. So I guess I'm just out. I guess I'm just out. And we feel the shame. Like, why don't I have that? God, I, I love you. I want to love you. Why don't I have that kind of emotional desire? And I'm not saying that God doesn't want to meet us there. But that's not a what Peter's trying to say. Oh, can I just, just say something to you that I think is good news? This word that gets translated to long for, epiphatheo, it's this Greek word that literally, this is its literal definition, longing that is directive, not intensive. Longing that is directive, not intensive. Peter's saying, hey, listen, friends, here's what you have to understand. 
Your desires have to be directed. Your longing has to be guided. There are going to be days where the last thing you want to do is spend time with Jesus. There are going to be days that the last thing you want to do is lay down your life for your enemies. There are going to be days where the last thing you want to do is humble yourself to your spouse and seek reconciliation for the good of what God is trying to do. But I'm just telling you, you weren't meant to be a slave to what you long for. You were meant to be submitted to Jesus and direct your longing to what brings life. There is an invitation here that we have to see, that you have to direct your affections to what brings life. We have become a slave to directing our affections to whatever our emotions are telling us in the moment. And what that does is it lets pain become the authority of your life. Listen, if you've walked through great pain, I honor you. I don't minimize pain. I know pain. You know pain. Great pain of relationship, great pain of death, great pain of suffering. There is great pain in the world. But I'm just here to tell you that your life is too important to let pain determine your future. And what so many of us have done, we've allowed pain to become the true authority. So we can't trust the word of God. We can't trust the character of God. We can't trust the promises of new creation because pain begins to come as a stronghold and mimic the very value system of God and tell us, well, God's promises are for everyone but you. Or God's going to be faithful to everyone but you. Or God's character is good, but he doesn't see you like that. Let me just tell you this. If you don't actually believe that you're beloved of God, there is a reason. Because in you and your spirit... You've been created whole. And the promise of God is that your spirit is now in union with the Father, crying out, Abba, Father, you were made to know how loved you are. You were made to know how deeply and cared for you are. You were made to know the promises and the future of God and that by faith, you and I have a future. And it's a future that's going to be filled with victories and suffering. But by faith, we have the authority to walk through it with joy. But because you and I have stopped living in the principles of directing our affections, directing our desires, we've actually allowed pain to retell our stories. And I'm just here to remind you, I don't minimize your pain. But I will not minimize the blood of Jesus in light of your pain either. And it's time for us to see that there is an authority beyond our experiences. But Paul, or Peter, continues... And he has this invitation to grow up. And he says this, like newborn infants long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. To grow up into salvation. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And it's almost like Paul's, you know, Philippians 2, where he talks about working out your salvation, growing up into your salvation. You're almost like, well, I've read Ephesians chapter 2, and that's, I know it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not by works. So how do I grow up into salvation? How do I work out my salvation? It feels like some earning gets mixed in there. This is not what Peter's trying to say at all. Though let me remind you of this quote by Dallas Willard that I love. God is not opposed to your effort, just your earning. He longs for us to receive the free gift of grace and salvation and then to walk and stand in authority in the midst of it. But there's a profound difference between working out your salvation and working for your salvation. You see, because what God has done is when he does this move in your life, this is, let me just give you some foundational Christian theology just to bring us on the same page that many of us probably already know. You are a tripartite being. That's what theologians would call it. Your body, soul, and spirit. Apparently, God just likes to do things in Trinitarian pictures, right? 
And you are body, which is your actual body, which, by the way, is not lesser than, and it'll be fully redeemed. God, your body matters to God. God will give you a new body in, crea- in, in new creation. And you have a spirit. Your spirit is an actual substance. It's metaphysical. So you and I can't see it in the here and now, but it doesn't mean it doesn't actually exist. In a spiritual world, in a metaphysical world, your spirit is an actual substance. It's an actual thing. And you have a soul. And a soul's a little more mysterious, but the Bible represents that there is something in you that is described by your basic personhood, your mind, your will, your emotions. That's your soul. So there are these three distinct parts of you. In original creation, when God birthed humanity, these three things function in perfect harmony together in oneness, just like the Father, Son, and Spirit are one, right? When sin broke into the world, when the curse of sin broke into the world, it did a few things. It brought a curse to your body and your flesh, which means two things. Your body will now die, which it was never intended to do, and your flesh itself is now a slave to the master of sin and the master of death. Your flesh, your entire life, will want to serve its master. Your spirit died. The ability to be in true union with the Father ceased to exist. And your soul, your will, your mind, and your emotions just kind of begin to navigate your life in many ways as a slave to the desires of your flesh. But the minute you come into Jesus, something happens. You, you actually find that the scriptures promise that the minute you come into Jesus, your spirit is resurrected and whole, and the Bible calls it new creation. Your spirit is flawless. It is void of sin. It is not broken. It is not damaged. It has no wounds. It is 100% restored. It is 100% in union with God. It is a work of new creation. In fact, the scriptures in Romans describes how you now cry out, Abba, Father, your spirit is in constant union with the spirit of God. And not only in salvation did we get a restored spirit, we were now filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's like your spirit and the Holy Spirit hang out as buds inside of you, right? So now you're a quadra type being. I don't know what that is, right? Um, but your spirit, fully resurrected, and your whole, the Holy Spirit now governing your life, your, your body's still dead. You will still die, and your flesh still craves sin. And the lie of your flesh is that it's an equal authority to your spirit. But this is what Romans 7 and 8 is all about. Your flesh is not an equal authority to the spirit. Your spirit is the true authority of your life. And Paul in those passages talks about how the mind that is submitted to the flesh that will die, the mind that is submitted to the spirit will life. Paul's use of that word mind is really the idea of a sense of self. It's not necessarily just your mind. And I would actually argue that the greatest way for us to understand that passage, what Paul means by that word of mind, you and I call the soul personhood, a sense of self, mind, will, emotions, thoughts. Paul is actually saying in this Trinitarian picture of your own life that the soul that is set on the flesh, it'll experience death, but the soul that is set on the spirit will experience life. You see, because what God did when he did a work of new creation in you, he genuinely raised your spirit from the dead. There is a wholeness and a truth that nothing could touch, but you want to know what he didn't do? He didn't change your friends. He didn't change your habits. He didn't change where you lived. He didn't change your patterns. He didn't change your mindsets. He didn't change all of those things. So you have to work out your salvation, this work inside of you, into every single part of your life. Or as Peter would say, you have to grow up into your salvation You and I, see, this is what's happened. So many of us have come into Christ and we've experienced the resurrection power of salvation and the redemption of forgiveness, but then we've stayed children 
enslaved to our emotions, enslaved to our desires, because we actually haven't walked in the truth and the power of what God has won for us. And thank God for grace. Can I just say, I'm, I'm not here to preach a message of holiness that's a burden or holiness that's condemnation. Thank God for grace that he loves sinners and he loves broken men and women like you and me. I have no way forward without grace. I am an object of grace. My life is grace. But there's an invitation here to grow up into what salvation has won for us. You see, this is what Jesus began to speak to me. And he didn't speak to me about my church, and he didn't speak to me about the gospel. He didn't speak to me about my city. He spoke to me about my own heart. That there were things that he died for in my life that I was refusing to grow up into because there were places from my past that I had given an authority over me that I didn't see it was time to renounce. It was time to renounce that there was a, a wound of rejection from my past, that it came into my future. There was time to, to renounce senses of, of sin life that had somehow marked the way I saw myself and saw the way I saw my, my story and my future. I had realized that I had believed in the lies of the enemy in the most subtle ways in my own heart and mind in ways I couldn't fully interpret. And Jesus began to speak to me about a future that is fully free. There's a reason why Paul in Galatians 5 said, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Why does he have to say such an absurd identity? Of course it's for freedom that you've been set free. Well, you and I know quite well because freedom is two things. It is a gift of grace that Jesus has won you, that you receive the minute you come out of salvation, and it is something that you have to walk in to experience. It is for freedom that you've been set free. You cannot settle for what the world offers. You cannot settle for what your experiences have told you. It is time for us to actually let God do this work of making us into true living stones that believe him for all of his promises to grow up into all that he's done for you, to be the people. Because then we see this fourth invitation that we will be made into a dwelling place for God. As you come to him, living stones rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and prescient, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Being built up into the house of God together. And see, for us to be this house of God together, it starts by being living stones in the power and the presence of God. The church God dreams of is built upon the hearts and the homes of the people who belong to it. And what I believe is that you and I have an invitation from Jesus to actually allow him to do the work that he dreams to do but it's not gonna start in our services. It's gonna start in our hearts, in our kitchen tables, in our homes, because our homes represent the place where you and I truly believe. What you believe shows up in your home. What you actually follow shows up in your home. And my friends, it's time to let Jesus be the master 
of your marriage and the master of your parenting and the master of your free time and the master of your waking up and going to bed. And I'm not talking about a hyper legalistic, pharisaical way that doesn't allow for you to actually live life and experience joy and be in the world but not of it. I'm talking about a reclaiming that the power of the Holy Spirit wants to go with you everywhere you go and everywhere you live. And when you let God begin to move in the most consecrated parts of your life, what you're going to find is that the Spirit of God is going to start to do a work you cannot imagine. He wants to make you into a house. He wants to make you into a set-apart house. And worship team can come back up. I'm going to close. A few years back, um, Emily and I had the chance to buy a home in Georgia. And uh, it was a gift. There's a long story uh, of God's like miraculous provision that um, I, I don't have time to explain, but in, we bought an uh, old small home. We have four kids. It was 800 square feet, so that wasn't going to work. And, um, uh, but so we added on to the home. And uh, the way, when the builder was, was doing it, he said, hey, there's, the, our house was on the corner of two streets, and we're in the corner lot. And he said, there's, uh, there's no way for me to keep your house facing the direction that it is and to add enough space to it. So the only way we're going to be able to add space is we're going to have to flip the direction of your house, and now it's going to face on the different street. And so I lived on the corner of these two streets. My house was originally facing uh, west, east. My house was originally facing east. And when it got rebuilt, it is now facing north. Yes, that's a, I'm terrible with directions. But you get what I'm saying. It was facing this way, and now it's facing this way, right? And um, no big deal. Uh, but we, you know, we're like, okay, well, how do, we, how do we get it changed so it reflects the neighborhood we're, at, we're actually on? And like, okay, well, you'll, you'll have to go talk to the city. So we went and talked to the city, and they're like, well, you'll have to go to talk to the post office. And that's when I knew it would never happen, right? <laughs> and I say that with deep love. My dad was a postman his whole life. I love the post office. I have fond memories of the post office. But it proved to be true. We did try. It didn't work. So our house is in this awkward scenario um, where the address makes it feel like it should be on this street. Uh, but the reality is, is that it is absolutely not on that street. It is on the street that is pointing north. And in our world of constant food deliveries, this has become a problem. And it has become exponentially worse because Chipotle has just started delivering to my house. And unlike Ben Dixon, the favor of God is on, you know, Chipotle, not Qdoba. And we just all have to admit it. Just a correction for you, brother. And um, I do love Chipotle way too much. But it doesn't matter what I put in the apps. It doesn't matter what I say. Inevitably, the exact same thing happens every time I order something to my house. I get that phone call from the driver that's like, hey, I can't find your place. And I drive and I walk out to the corner and I'm like, yeah, I'm on the phone with them. I'm like, yep, hey, I'm right here. Yep. And they drive back around and they meet me on the corner. And this, one of the last times it happened, the, the driver goes, uh, why is your house facing the wrong direction? Why is your, your address is all wrong. Your address is wrong. I'm like, yeah, I know. But this picture, it, it was actually in, in the same place where God was speaking to me is, it began to be a picture of an identity that God was trying to cement in my heart. You see, because just like my actual house built in a neighborhood facing a different direction, you and I are a house that God has built, but he's built it intentionally to face a different direction than the neighbors around you. See, your neighbors, their houses, they point towards the kingdom of this world. They point towards the kingdom of Federal Way in Seattle. They point towards the kingdom 
that they belonged to, but your house, it was built differently. It was built facing the direction of the kingdom of God. And the very reason he did this was that you would actually realize that your life was meant for the corner, for the interaction between these two worlds, when inevitably be because of how you live, there are people who are going to come to you and go, why is your house facing a different direction? Why is your house facing the wrong way? Well, I can tell you actually, because my house is facing the King Jesus. My house is facing the kingdom of God. My house is pointed in a different direction. Because what Peter is trying to say in this last part, that there's an identity you carry. He talks about how you and I, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, exiles and sojourners, people who hadn't received mercy, who now have received mercy, people who didn't belong, who now belong. This house, he's saying, it's, it's a set-apart house. It's meant to face a different direction. You were not made to be like the world. You were not made to simply fit in. You were made that something about your life tells a story, the true story of the power and the redemptive purposes of Jesus of his great love and his holiness and his worth. And this invitation, what God is trying to say is that you and I, we carry this culture of the kingdom, but the culture of the kingdom will never be reflected in our churches until it actually gets reflected first and foremost in your hearts and first and foremost in your houses. So the house that God really is building is yours. It's your house. It's your home. It's your life, it's your future, it's your marriage. There's no passing along the responsibility of what happens in your home to someone else. There's no passing along the responsibility of what happens in your marriage to someone else. There's no responsibility in who you've been called to be to your children and who you've been called to be in your singleness to anyone else. It's time to renounce what doesn't fit. It's time to direct, no matter what our emotions say. It's time to grow up into the fullness of what Jesus has for us. And it's time to be the house that God is trying to build. Because I'm telling you, the days are coming and the days are here where you're going to realize living on the corner of the intersection of two worlds is going to be weary and challenging. But the power of the Holy Spirit longs to walk with us and longs to do what we could never ask or imagine. And I'll tell you in my life, in my life, and this year, I have experienced the most profound transformation of my own soul. And I have allowed the Holy Spirit to reveal all the things I'd put away that needed to be sent away. It helped me see in all the places that I longed for Jesus through emotions, but not through convictions. And he began to help me see a vision of a man that I needed to fight to grow up into, not to earn, but the realization that, as the scripture says, a striving to abide because I'm telling you, my heart is bent on one thing. I want the Spirit of God 
to reach my generation. I want a revival in my day. The amount of friends who've abandoned the way of Jesus and they don't know that they've just let pain be their master. The amount of people I love who are walking in uncertainty. The darkness in the culture around us. The unfaithfulness of the church to just simply be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm longing for God to do what only he can do. And as he heard my prayers for my city, he responded with addressing my heart. And I just come today to tell you that God wants to move in you. He wants to move in you. And he wants to move in your home. And the hope we have for our city starts there. And may we as his church, may we as his people, just simply let God do this incredible work so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. Let me pray, and then Pastor Ben's going to come and close. God, I just thank you. Would you be among us? Lord, what an honor it is. God, I just, first and foremost, for myself, I want to know all that you have for me. I don't want to leave a single promise that you have on the table. Lord, would you do what only you can do? And God, would you teach us how to be your people? Move in our homes, God. Move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.